Welcome to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast, a podcast providing in-depth analysis and coverage of your favorite Milwaukee Brewers by Peter and David Go. Welcome to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. I'm your host, Peter Go, alongside David here today. David, officially the MLB offseason, it has arrived. 2021 season history. Of course, Atlanta Braves going on to win the World Series. Another opportunity for um, the Brewers to lose to a team in the playoffs, and then they proceed to keep on winning. So continue that streak we talked about a few weeks back after the Braves eliminated the Brewers. But here we have it, the Braves, the 2021 World Champions. Yeah, I don't know if it is that the Brewers are really good at giving them momentum or the Brewers just have a really unlucky run of teams that they play against in the playoffs. Uh, could be either, I guess, maybe some of both. But the Braves ended up running off that nice streak, kind of unexpected, although they are a very good team and w- did have a very good season, got hot at the right time. Still was a surprise to see. Yeah, you always got that team that gets hot at the right time, like you said. I was, it was too bad to, for the Braves to have such success without Soroka and Acuna. I'm just thinking from their perspective as those young budding superstars to miss, a, miss out on a season, of course, a season where they do end up winning the World Series. And you never know if there's going to be another chance for you to make the World Series. Maybe that's the Braves' only World Series run in the Acuna Braves era. Who knows exactly? But unfortunate for those two players that, of course, they are not able to play in the World Series. But nonetheless, 2021 season in the history books officially completed. And like I said, we are officially into the offseason. Today, we're going to be covering what the Brewers have as far as existing payroll guaranteed contracts, who's arbitration eligible. Uh, Should be a pretty exciting episode. I know uh, I'm excited for it. I'm a little bit more analytical numbers based than maybe others are, but I always find it really interesting to see how David Stearns, Matt Arnold, and the rest of the Brewers front office craft a roster, craft a team beyond just uh, the players on the field. So it should be a it should be a very interesting episode. Before we get into that, David, what is today's trivia question? Today's trivia question is: uh, Which of the two occurrences has happened more in Brewers franchise history? Is it that a Brewer led the American League in home runs or led the National League in home runs? Uh, so that, of course, being uh, in part because the Brewers switched from the American League to the National League back prior to the 1998 season. Uh, So that would be the cutoff for leading the AL and NL. Uh, And these are just Brewers, not counting Milwaukee Braves or anything like that. Um, So which happened more frequently, Brewers leading the AL in home runs or the NL? That is today's trivia question. We also have a random player of the day, a world champion, but not one of the players on that roster. Actually, the first base coach, Eric Young Sr., who played for the Brewers. You might remember also his son, Eric Young Jr., I'm not sure if he played in the regular season with the Brewers, uh, but I know Eric Young Jr. was at least in in spring training with the team. Eric Young Sr. played about a year and a half with the club, uh, 2002 and part of 2003. Actually had a decent year on that 2002 team. Hit 280, 338 on base, uh, stole 31 bags. He also actually walked one more time than he struck out, which is very tough to do, uh, especially playing pretty much a full season. Uh, so he was he was pretty nice, uh, pretty nice player on that 106 loss Brewers team in 2002, 2003. Uh, he actually had it was maybe better, 344 on base and a 421 slugging. 
so pretty productive in his time with the Brewers, 0203 around that time. And then they traded him to the Giants in August for a minor leaguer who never panned out. Uh, but pretty nice run there. And congratulations to Eric Young Sr. Uh, for winning the World Series as a member of the Braves coaching staff. I believe it's his first World Series ring. Uh, so nice accomplishment for Eric Young Sr. Yeah, I think back to EYJ, Eric Young Jr. I know his time with the Brewers coincided with a spring training visit for us. And I know he was always out there before the game signing autographs for fans as David and I uh, collected autographs, as well as even collecting autographs through the mail from players. EYJ, all through the years of his playing time, was one of the best, a very much a fan favorite. Uh, so that's that's what I think of. Um, but yeah, Eric Young Sr. did have that brief stint with the Brewers. Good to see him win a ring at this point in his career. In, a, in Brewer news over the last week, I think the biggest news of the week was Jackie Bradley Jr. back for another year and Avisael Garcia moving on to free agency. First off, Jackie Bradley Jr. opting into the contract. David, I, I don't think that was much of a surprise for either of us or the Brewers. Anything else that you would add uh, on this news piece? No, not a big surprise, uh, but Kind of a formality, uh, seeing Jackie Bradley Jr. Um, come back to the Brewers. Not a big surprise, but definitely someone who will be a key piece. Uh, because if we see a Jackie Bradley Jr. who is even to some degree like he was this year offensively, the Brewers are going to have a tough time being able to get enough offense to be a World Series contender next year. Uh, but if we see Jackie Bradley Jr. a little bit more like he was in his time with Boston, I think we could be uh, or we could see a very successful um, Jackie Bradley Jr. who's maybe even an above average regular, something that we definitely did not see this year. So he's going to be a pretty big X factor, I would say, in the Brewers next year. And they will have him back for nine and a half million uh, as we see uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. opt into his contract. Also, I uh, just wanted to note that both he and Colton Wong, who were finalists for the Gold Glove, came up short neither of them winning the gold glove Cardinals with five recipients. That's the most ever for one team in one year. Uh, and the Brewers have not had much success winning gold gloves uh, throughout their history. I think Yount, I want to say Yount won a little bit. George Scott won a few in the seventies uh, and, and Gomez and Kane more recently. Yeah. Gomez and Kane, those, those two recent center fielders for the Brewers. But yeah, besides that, not a lot of success there. Jackie Bradley jr. It, there is still some upside. I mean, we think back to, of course, the, the year that Corbin Burns had in 2019 uh, and then the turnaround that he had. Not to say that Jackie Bradley Jr. is Corbin Burns by any means, but you also have to remember to be patient with players. A, one season is one season. Eric Lauer, again, I know that was an, a unique 2020 case, but you never know. And Jackie Bradley Jr. is a guy who has been established, has proven that he can succeed uh, at the major league level. And like you said, it, offensively from him, it wouldn't actually take all that much, relatively speaking, for him to be an above-average player given his outstanding defense and strong base running. So we'll see what 2022 holds for him. There's certainly opportunity for him to be an above-average player. Whether or not he steps up to that, we shall see. And I mentioned Avi Sayel Garcia opting out of his option, becoming a free agent. Uh, also wanted to note that he, or excuse me, that the Brewers did not decline, excuse me, that the Brewers did not offer a qualifying offer uh, for Avisayo Garcia. Uh, if you could just share your thoughts on that, uh, maybe perhaps explain the qualifying offer, how that works, and the implications that the Brewers would have had had they offered him that. The qualifying offer is 
um, a one-year deal that is the average of the top 125 salaries for that year actually is how the, the figure is determined. And each team can choose to offer an, a pending free agent, a qualifying offer. And if the free agent declines and then signs with another team, the, the team that is losing the free agent will receive some sort of compensatory draft pick. The, the mark was $18.4 million for this year. So the Brewers could have chosen to extend that figure to Garcia. It would have been kind of risky because it would have been really kind of limited the Brewers in what they could have done with the offseason if he accepted. I'm not sure if he would have accepted. He's coming off a very strong year. I would guess he'll get somewhere in the range of three years, 36, uh, maybe a couple million per year above or below that. But uh, but it, it still is reasonable that he might have accepted it. And I think that's something that the Brewers saw as too great of a risk. Uh, they would have received a pick at the end of the second round. Uh, so not like a first pick or anything like that. So I think that's kind of what drew the Brewers away from offering that qualifying offer. Uh, and potentially Garcia's happy because he doesn't get attached with that draft pick also, possibly limiting his, uh, his, his free agent market. Yeah, I agree. I think as the Brewers look at the offseason and likely don't have exactly all that much room in the budget, you think about a situation where they're now tying up nearly $20 million just for one season of Avisayo Garcia, even though coming off a good year, I think that really ties the Brewers' hands and didn't want to take that risk, like you said, really is probably a win-win for both the Brewers and Garcia. And I agree. I mean, I could see him potentially getting even into the low 40s for a multi-year deal, uh, which would likely be more, or excuse me, would likely be less than the, of course, 18.4 million he can make next year. Of course, with that being one-year deal versus a multi-year option, I think he will get a couple of years, like you said, somewhere in that 36 million range uh, and get significant playing time, uh, which is well-deserved. For him. Um, you also mentioned that uh, before we got on the podcast, Eric Yardley and Luke Maley also getting designated for assignment. Um, anything to note on those two lesser players moving on from the Brewers? I was a little surprised that the Brewers chose to move on from, uh, from Luke Maley, particularly, especially with Manny Pena hitting free agency. I was a little bit surprised because Maley's a less expensive option and someone that they could keep to retain depth. The only thing is, I believe Maley will be out of options uh, after uh, after this year that is just concluded. So less flexibility there. The Brewers could be looking at maybe giving Mario Feliciano some time as the Brewers' backup catcher to Omar Narvaez this year. Um, that's certainly one possibility. Or they could go out and get a veteran backup catcher uh, to help with the catching duties alongside Narvaez. Uh, so Maylee was a little bit more of a surprise. Yardley did not have a very good year in the majors and was uh, up and down a little bit. So I wasn't very surprised to see Yardley uh, designated for assignment, outrighted, and then ultimately choosing to, um, to elect free agency. But the Brewers did add one reliever in light of that news, uh, and that was Trevor Gott, who was a reliever who has seen some time in the major leagues with the Angels, and then more recently, the Giants. Pretty hard-throwing right-handed relief pitcher. Uh, came up and had some pretty immediate success. 2015, his first year in the major leagues. 302 ERA across 47 and two-thirds innings. And was looking like maybe a, a key piece of the 
Angels bullpen going forward, uh, but ended up being dealt to Washington later on uh, and has been kind of bouncing around the league since then. Uh, he did spend last year with AAA Sacramento in the Giants organization where he had a 4.1 ERA, uh, but he did have a higher strikeout rate than he has been running lately, 11.4 Ks per nine. So there could be something that the Brewers saw in that, potentially got maybe added a new pitch, uh, figured out some things uh, with his arsenal on how to maybe utilize it better, uh, or maybe even saw a velo uptick. I, I, I don't know those things. We don't necessarily have the data on those things for minor leaguers, but it's certainly some things that are possible. And it's a, a low risk move. Somebody who they could still choose to keep in the minor leagues. It's not like he's got a ma guaranteed major league contract, even though he will go on the major league 40 man roster. So Trevor Gott was added uh, over the past week to provide some additional relief pitching depth. Yeah, I think you summed it up well in, in the re relief pitching depth. We saw some success, obviously, from Brad Boxberger, yeah, as well as Hunter Strickland last year. Neither of those guys had big expectations, not to say that Gott's going to be the Brad Boxberger of the 2022 Brewers by any means, but simply saying, like you said, low-risk deal, add some depth. Maybe he's in the majors for the year. Maybe he's up and down, or maybe he's even in the minors or off the Brewers during the season, but a good depth piece add. I didn't want to mention the Luke Maley piece. I think was a little bit interesting and perhaps surprising given, like you said, Manny Pena's um, potential departure from Milwaukee. Perhaps they want greater flexibility with uh, Feliciano, a younger player, like you said, who has options or just able to find another veteran backup catchers. I know that those can be a little bit more replaceable and easier to find maybe a, a jet bandy type um, who they can just kind of plug in, um, make a start every once in a while and, and add some depth at a, a lower price point than, than Maley may have gotten. So we'll see what happens there. I don't think that's a, a big move one way or the other for the Brewers going into the season. Of course, Narvaez is expected to get the majority of the playing time at the position. Uh, again, assuming that Manny Pena does hit the free agency market and leave Milwaukee. So let's, well, yeah. Um, by the way, just wanted to quick interject with you mentioning Jet Bandy. Did you know that his sister has uh, half a million followers on Instagram, like 200,000 subscribers on YouTube? Um, she she was a college basketball player and then continues to make like sports related content. But I'm not really sure. I haven't really ever watched her stuff. I just found that out recently uh, that she is very popular, uh, perhaps far more popular than Jet Bandy is, um, unfortunately. Uh, I'm not even sure what, what Jet Bandy is doing at this point. Uh, I guess it says he's a free agent right now. And, I mean, he he was expected to be a little bit better than he was uh, with the Brewers. But, yeah, could certainly see the Brewers going that route and adding someone a lot more along those lines to fill that backup catcher position. Yeah, we'll have to allow a week's prep for uh, the Jet Bandy random player of the day. If the situation does uh, involve itself, be okay with that next week. So perhaps stay tuned for a Jet Bandy random play of the day. David O'Hunt do his little private investigation on where Jet Bandy is, um, and that will be likely our random player of the day for next next week. But let's move on towards taking a look at the Brewers payroll, the impending free agents that they have, current contracts, arbitration, all those things. Let's start things off with who are the guaranteed contracts that the Brewers have again entering twenty twenty two. Of course, first and foremost, Christian Yelich, they are owing $22 million. He, of course, is under contract through 2029, uh, as well as another pair of outfielders, 
Lorenzo Kane and Jackie Bradley Jr. Jackie Bradley Jr. We already touched on. He'll be receiving nine point five million with a twelve million dollar mutual option in twenty twenty three and an eight million dollar buyout. Lorenzo Kane, a seventeen million dollar contract. Uh, excuse me, seventeen million dollars owed to him in twenty twenty two. This will be the last year that Kane's under contract, which is uh, a bit sad. You think about the performance that he's had for the Brewers, uh, both in, of course, his very, very short time with them early on. Uh, and now I'm not exactly sure what it stands to hold for him going forward after this year, but Kane, Yelich, Jackie Bradley Jr., all three of those outfielders, hopefully the three starting outfielders for the Brewers with Tyrone Taylor entering that mix as well as a fourth outfielder, uh, all three under contract for the Brewers entering next season. Uh, as well as Colton Wong, the second baseman, gold glove finalist, $8 million uh, for him next year with a club option the year following. Uh, Freddie Peralta, Josh Lindblom as well, both owed between 2 and $3 million for next year. Uh, total of those players, aforementioned, $61.8 million of the payroll, of course, 22 of that, and 17 going to Yelich and Kane. Any thoughts there, David, on the Brewers' guaranteed contracts for 2022? One thing that I thought is interesting is a lot of people, writers, fans are saying that the Brewers could um, perhaps improve their ball club most by adding a power hitting or, or just a, a good hitting in general uh, corner outfielder. But yet the Brewers top three highest paid players, at least in guaranteed contracts, are all outfielders. They had that last year where the, their four highest paid players were outfielders with Garcia in the mix. Uh, it would be it would be interesting to see how the Brewers would manage that, but potentially could be easier with possibly the incoming uh, universal DH coming to the National League that could provide a pretty nice boost to the Brewers lineup. Uh, but just kind of one interesting thing to note. And also, could Lorenzo Cain retire after this year? I uh, was kind of thinking about that. I think it's possible. Uh, I mean, he has been around a little bit. He kind of is he, – he plays hard. Um, but he, as a result, is banged up a lot. I know he's a big family man. Heading into his age 36 season, uh, is that something that he would consider? Uh, it, it seems like something, especially we, we think about the Buster Posey news uh, coming this past week. It seems like that would be a kind of similar situation. Maybe Kane not quite as high of a, of a pedestal as, as Posey was on as far as career accomplishments and as far as uh, current productivity. But I think it's still something that we could see possibly is a Lorenzo Cain retirement after the year. I think that's certainly a feasible option uh, that will, of course, depend on he and his family as far as what he decides. Regardless of his performance, I think for the most part this year, there will be an opportunity for him to continue to play. He's clearly shown he's, yeah, he's, he's had his fair share of injuries and time off the field, but he, he's really has been a pretty durable player when you think about the way he plays center field. I mean, think about that catch he almost made that uh, in the Braves here is, of course, running into the fence. Clearly is still continuing to play full speed ahead. Uh, I think that's the only way he can play. So I expect to see him continue to do that until he retires, whether that's after 2022 or further, I think will ultimately be up to he and his family. But I do agree with you that there is a, a definitely a chance that 2022 is the last season of Lorenzo Cain, who a fun player to watch. Uh, seems like a, just a very good baseball guy. Uh, certainly will be missed once he does retire. So, uh, David, you want to touch on the options that the Brewers have this offseason? Yeah, I mean, we've kind of already talked about them kind of past now uh, as the deadlines for them have passed, but they were the Jackie Bradley Jr. and the Avisal Garcia options. So they picked up 
uh, JBJ. So we included that in the guarantees. And then Avisel Garcia uh, had to buy out his contract for $2 million. Uh, just kind of a way to manage the the uh, the contract a little bit so it was more spread out throughout a couple of years. Uh, so that $2 million will go on to this year's payroll as a factor, uh, having bought out Garcia. Perfect. And with the Brewers being a young, young controllable roster, of course, David Stern's favorites, a lot of arbitration-eligible players, starting off with the Brewers' ace, Corbin Burns, who is arbitration-eligible. Of course, the Brewers will no doubt be bringing back one of the best pitchers in the game. Any idea on what the Brewers can expect to pay for Corbin Burns this year after, again, being one of the best in the league? Yeah, so the figures that we're going to primarily be using are from MLB Trade Rumors. Uh, the the website, MLBTradeRumors.com, seems kind of random since they mostly just report news, but they also make arbitration salary projections that are really good. Really nobody else in the industry has found a way to have even comparable ones. Uh, so they're usually pretty accurate within a, maybe a couple hundred thousand either way. So we're going to use those estimates uh, to look at some of the players and what the Brewers can anticipate paying them. Corbin Burns will probably be about $4 million based on his prior production, which of course has been excellent over the last two years especially, but also he's heading into his first year of arbitration. You gradually work your way up to higher salaries uh, as you go through arbitration. Uh, so that's why you might see someone like Hayter earn significantly more than Corbin Burns. Hayter's entering his third out of, in his case, four years of arbitration. Uh, so Hayter would be making more than Corbin Burns uh, in this case. Yeah, and and similarly, Brandon Woodruff, who, of course, didn't quite have the year that Corbin Burns had, although still an outstanding year. Uh, the estimates for MLB trade rumors for Woodruff up significantly, up to $7.1 million, like you said, for that reason uh, of a longer tenure for Brandon Woodruff. And while you mentioned Josh Hayter, let's just jump to Josh Hayter, who likely will be the most expensive player in arbitration, at least for the Brewers this year. What did they have as far as an estimate for Josh Hader? Hader's estimate is $10 million. Uh, part of that bump is because he accrued a lot of saves this year, 34 saves to be exact. And arbitration, the way that the contract negotiations go, the way that the judges in the actual arbitration cases, should they go that far, uh, they value the home runs, the RBIs, the batting average. On the pitching side, they 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 – they really like the wins and the low ERA and the saves. So with a reliever, you're going to save money by not allowing them to accrue saves. But the Brewers have not exactly had a great history of arbitrations with Hayter. Uh, of course, the Brewers have allowed him to accrue saves. So uh, his price tag will probably be about $10 million. And I wouldn't expect the Brewers to really fight it uh, because they already have done that with Hayter before. Uh, so... He'll probably get around $10 million, uh, for next year. Brent Studer, another member of the Brewers' bullpen, right up around $2 million, $2.3 um, is the estimate there. A couple members of the rotation as well on their first round of arbitration, Eric Lauer and Adrian Hauser, around that $2.5 million range, kind of similar. Uh, Lauser, excuse me, Lauer maybe having a little bit higher of an estimate because of his strikeout numbers, essentially, uh, would be the argument there. Um, and also, side note, but Adrian Hauser got married this past week. So congratulations to Adrian Hauser and his new wife. Just wanted to, to point that out. Nice little uh, pay uh, pay increase for him. Probably 
what is that probably equivalent to about almost a two and a half uh, multiplier from the uh, I'm assuming he was somewhere near major league minimum a hair under a million does that sound about right yeah so might be able to pay for his whole wedding now uh, with, perhaps with, with with his new uh, his new contract I, I it, it it is pricey I think he can probably keep it under 2.5 uh, most likely I have gone through it before so I can tell you that's pretty pricey but uh, congrats to, to Adrian uh, and that 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 is all the, the the pitching staff that will be arbitration eligible this year. Actually, I take that back. That those are the estimated locks um, that we have. Of course, all those arms will be back with the Brewers: Brent Suter, Josh Hader, Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, Eric Lauer, and Adrian Hauser. How about Yandel Gustave, who played, of course, a minor role in the Brewers bullpen, a little bit more of a mop-up guy. Uh, their estimate was around eight hundred thousand. Do you think the Brewers bring back? A guy like Gustavi at eight hundred thousand, or simply go to the market and uh, try to get somebody else who may be a lower price tag and potentially could provide similar value. I think a situation like this is more or less a toss-up. You couldn't really go wrong either way if you pick it. If you uh, decide to agree to a contract with him, and oh, oh well, I mean he costs two hundred fifty thousand more than another reliever. At the same time, I don't really think Gustave is going to produce a lot for the Brewers. I don't think he's really more than a depth arm. So with the way that the Brewers have been over the last couple of years, really wanting to save uh, as much as they can think about the non-tenders of Junior Guerra or Travis Shaw, uh, just to name a couple, I guess even the Brewers parting ways with Gustave. Yeah. I was even going to mention Jed Jerko. Uh, I think about the 2020 season that he had. With that option, he was, yeah. Yeah. Right. He was the best, the best Brewers offensive player last year. And then, of course, Brewers chose to let him walk as well, uh, which I, I think overall played out okay with them, with, of course, Urias stepping up and the trade for Adames and Telez. Uh, but, yeah, they have been on the cheap side. And then, of course, the Christian Yelich monster contract extension as well played into the role, I think, as far as why the Brewers were continuing to try to cut dollars where they could. And I could see that being a, another way that they choose to do that. Like you said, save a couple hundred thousand on Gustave. One player who they won't cut the corners on will be Omar Narvaez, of course, coming back off that all-star campaign from him. A little bit of a slower second half. So hopefully he's able to have a little bit more consistency next year. Uh, MLB Trade Rumors estimating about $4 million for Narvaez. Uh, I don't think it's much of a question as far as whether that's a value for the Brewers. But any thoughts there on Narvaez? Uh, for his arbitration estimate. I think that's a no-brainer to bring him back. Very reasonable price. Uh, I think this is his second out of three years of arbitration. So uh, the Brewers do have some control over uh, his contractual rights, and you're not going to find another catcher that's this good on the market for this low of a price. Definitely worth it. Yeah, and obviously in a similar light, Willie Adame's $4 million estimate uh, that one, I, I won't even ask you whether that's uh, worth it or not. Of course, we all know Brewers will happily take a productive shortstop for $4 million a year. Again, David Stern is loving that young, controllable talent. Uh, of course, Adames in the free market would get a whole lot more than $4 million. So interesting as well. I don't know if this isn't something we need to cover today, but I think at some point, as a collective bargaining agreement is going on this offseason as well, taking a look at how they structure arbitration, uh, players coming up to the big leagues. Of course, the Chris Bryant situation where the Cubs kept him in the minors to regain another year of control of him and that whole situation. I think that that will be looked at in what may be a potentially conflicting year for the collective bargaining. Again, we'll take a look at that down the road as we get closer to the de that deadline. Don't need to cover that 
today, but I do think that is something to note. Another young infielder for the Brewers, Luis Urias, another lock there, around $2.4 million estimate, and Rowdy Telez coming in just a hair under $2 million as well. I think both of those will be easy yeses for the Brewers after their performances this year, and hopefully Telez also gets more plate appearances in 2022. I really think he can be a pretty productive first baseman, and like you said, with the three outfielders more or less locked, I, I hate to have Jackie Bradley Jr. locked into a position, but with Taylor on the bench, I think we can be a little bit more um, confident in that, but you think about the infield with Urias, Adames, and Wong, um, it really just leaves Telez likely at first base. So I'm not sure that the Brewers really have another position to bring, bring in a big bat without one of those guys uh, either leaving or going on the bench. So hopefully Telez is able to pick up where he left off in 2021 and have a productive 22 full season with the Brewers next year. Uh, and then Jock, excuse me, not Jock Peterson. Uh, <laughs> I wish I wish Jock Peterson, um, but... Of course, um, the Brewers utility man, $1.3 million estimate. Do you think the Brewers pick that up for on-base, Jace? Yeah, I do think they they, they will pick it up. Uh, it would be worth it. He's a very productive bench piece, got good versatility. He's someone who I know he had a much better year than he's had in the past, but I think taking that gamble that he'll be able to continue that production is worth it. $1.3 million, not a huge risk, and somebody who can play all over the diamond and can fill in middle infield, uh, corner outfield, maybe someone who's well worth the 1.3 million. Yeah. I mean, the Brewers kept Aaron Perez for years as that utility man who was able to play all over the diamond and, uh, was in some ways the opposite of on base Jace in that sense. I know a Perez, not the on base guy by any means. Uh, I, I do totally agree with you that 1.3 million for a guy like, uh, Peterson makes a ton of sense, especially when you compare what they might pay on the open market for someone of his caliber. So even if he does take a step back in 22, which is certainly possible, I think it's well worth the $1.3 million estimate for Peterson to return. Finally, big Dan Vogelback uh, had sort of an up and down inconsistent 21 season. I talked about Rowdy Telez, of course, likely to get the majority of the at-bats if those two do return at first base. Do you think the Brewers bring back big Dan Vogelback this offseason? I think they'll choose to cut ties with him. I know there were there were talks last year about whether or not they'd retain him. They did decide to bring him back on a non-guaranteed deal. Ended up being a pretty nice bat off the bench, good pinch hitter. But I don't think the Brewers will choose to spend $2 million on that luxury. Uh, payroll's a little bit tight. Not not terribly tight, but um, but they're trying to save, save costs, especially in the short contention window that they have. And I don't think that Vogelbach, with the way that he played, uh, which was okay, but uh, when he got off to such a slow start, I think that kind of limited him, especially with the hamstring injury. The emergence of Rowdy Telez as well uh, certainly hurt his case. Uh, and having really no positional versatility does not work to his advantage. I think when you kind of combine those factors, we're looking at a guy that probably will get non-tendered by the Brewers, uh, even if we, we, um, we will always remember the walk-off grand slam that he hit against Alex Reyes and the, the St. Louis Cardinals. Yeah, I think that will be his defining moment with the Brewers. I think that will be the last game or the last big moment we see from Vogelback. Uh, any, uh, I know we're going to, of course, dive deeply into free agents and the free agent market. I'm putting you on the spot here. But with Rodney Tellez likely returning and getting the majority at-bats, if the Brewers were to look at the free agent market, 
Uh, there are a couple of big names on the free agent market at first base with the biggest one, of course, being Freddie Freeman. I don't think there's much of a question where he falls or where he goes after, of course, the World Series championship and has been a Braves for Braves uh, for his entire career. I think he will be returning. Brandon Belt, Anthony Rizzo, uh, Mitch Moreland, of course, Travis Shaw, another free agent uh, to mention, as well as Jose Martinez, Ryan Zimmerman, and a few other names. But any of those guys that you potentially see as fits uh, for the Brewers at first base, or is it likely that we just see the return of Rowdy Telez and the Brewers give him more consistent at-bats next year? I think the most likely scenario would be that we'll primarily see Rowdy Telez in that first base role. One guy that could come back onto the scene next year and hopefully comes back out is uh, Keston Hira, who could get some at-bats at first. Could be, we mentioned the DH earlier in the episode, and that'll probably be hanging over us until the new collective bargaining agreement uh, happens. Uh, but he could get some at-bats at DH. One guy also that you didn't mention is Mark Canha, uh, who was with the Oakland Athletics over the, the last couple of years. And he's somebody who can play in the corner outfield, a little bit below average defensively, plays a pretty good first base though, right-handed hitter, not a not huge power, uh, but hits for some power, more gap to gap, uh, and also gets on base pretty at a pretty high clip, uh, career 344 on base, um, and a good amount of walks. So uh, he's someone that I could see the Brewers maybe targeting, someone on a, maybe a shorter deal, like two years, 12 million. Uh, he did also lead the league this year with 27 hit by pitches. Uh, so quite the high number there. Um, might be coming after, uh, is it Kendall's record or Craig Biggio? I know one of them are, uh, one, I think one of them is the, the highest all time. So he's someone that we could see the Brewers, uh, the Brewers look at. And we'll talk about free agents more coming up, yeah, over the, the next couple episodes. Uh, and look at who the Brewers could choose to target because it's a pivotal offseason, kind of right in the middle of the Brewers contention window. And you need to really need to add offense, I would say for the Brewers to be a true World Series contender uh, and one of the best teams in baseball. Yeah, absolutely. There's a sneak preview there on, on the free agent talk. I think Kesson here is a big question mark. Not sure that the Brewers can exactly count on much from him, but on the other hand, he could have a breakout year and you know maybe return to his rookie of the – or not rookie of the year, but rookie year form for the Brewers. Who knows what we'll see from Kesson here. So as we continue to move on here – We've got our, again, guaranteed contracts of about $61 million, the $2 million buyout to Avisael Garcia. Uh, assuming the arbitration estimates we talked about and the Brewers choosing to let go of Gustave and Vogelback, that puts them at about $40 million arbitration, $1.8 million in deferred compensation to Ryan Braun. Of course, uh, Braun not playing for the Brewers any longer, which a likely total around $105 million dollars. We talked about some of the ways the Brewers could improve the roster. I think there's no question about the offense. Bullpen may look a little bit different too with some some guys leaving and some new arms uh, as well. Uh, but where do you see the Brewers uh, payroll landing uh, after the Brewers finish the offseason? My estimate would be around 120. I think the Brewers would be maybe a little bit more willing to, uh, to extend the payroll. Um, they didn't show as much of a willingness to do that last year, but given the circumstances, it makes a little bit more sense with the way that, of course, COVID-19 impacted, especially the 2020 season uh, and a little bit of this year too. But the Brewers have certainly recovered some of those losses uh, and ha having their, uh, their playoff run that they did and being so successful during the regular season certainly boosted ticket sales. Uh, so those are aspects of uh, the payroll 
or of their uh, their financial state uh, that would be taken into account. And I think Mark Atanasio seeing this window would be more likely to be willing to spend. I also do remember around 2015, 2016, when the Brewers were cutting payroll, running out, uh, you know, Jonathan VR and uh, Hernan Perez every day, they kind of indicated that they were going to save money now and then essentially save that money to use in the payroll in the future when they were contending a contending team. And we haven't really seen that. The levels that the payroll has been at over the past few years is kind of similar to what it would have been around 2011, 2012. Uh, really not much different, about 110, 115 around then. So I would like to see the Brewers stretch it to maybe up around 120. It would give them uh, some room to maybe add a more of an impact player uh, on possibly a shorter term deal with the, the amount of arbitration eligible guys who will increase in their salaries for next year and the year after. Um, but I, I do think that now is the time for the Brewers to extend it. And I, I do anticipate them uh, running a payroll higher than the 107 that they did this year. Yeah. And I think Atanasio and the ownership for the Brewers, of course, the new owner, Giannis Antetokounmpo as well for the Brewers. But I, I think they've done a great job, of course. I don't think Brewers fans would have to argue much about that. But I think it is worth noting that, you know, like you said, they, they did mention, hey, we're going to save some money now and spend later, which oftentimes when you're talking about ownership may or may not happen. So we'll see if, if they do hold their word on that. Hopefully, like I, I agree with you, hopefully they will go out and be willing to spend because, I mean, it's not often you have three of the best pitchers in all of baseball. Of course, Christian Yelich as well on the roster. A lot of opportunity for the Brewers. Like you said, they, they're still a piece or two away from being a true World Series contender. Um, and some of those could even come from uh, the free agent signings, both, of course, outside of the Brewers returners. But Brewers also do have a fair amount of potential free agent returners. So let's just go rapid fire here. We already talked about Manny Pena, um, but rapid fire on Pena. Will Pena return with the Brewers, yes or no? No. All right. Uh, Eduardo Escobar. I would anticipate no as well. Avisayo Garcia, obviously already being a no. Brad Boxberger. Um, probably not, but I, I could see a reunion happening. Brett Anderson. No, that one, that one doesn't really make any sense for the Brewers to re-sign Anderson. Agreed. And probably very similarly, Daniel Norris. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, Hunter Strickland. Uh, probably not as well. Uh, yeah, I, I don't see the Brewers really bringing back Strickland. Yeah, I think the most intriguing there are Escobar and Boxberger, with I think even Boxberger being probably the more realistic one of the two. Of course, he had the great year this year. Does he continue to have success next year? Maybe, maybe not. But he will come at a much higher price tag. And I could see the Brewers uh, cutting the budget a little bit and going with another uh, cheaper option in the pen with somebody like Boxberger, who has some upside to be a solid reliever, but won't come at quite the price tag uh, as Boxberger may after a strong showing this year. So there you have it breakdown of the Brewers, payroll, all their options this offseason. I, I, like you said, I think it will probably be a pretty quiet offseason. I think there's maybe maybe the Brewers make a, a semi-large splash in trying to land a bat. I know Nelson Cruz, you've talked about uh, very briefly, if the DH were to come into play in the National League, I would like that addition a lot. Um, and maybe would fit into the Brewers' payroll around 120, 125 uh, if they were to have the opportunity to add a DH this offseason. Um, and like I said, we will obviously dive in further 
free agency, depth chart, all those things. Any other final thoughts, David, before we jump into our final topic today? I would just hope that the Brewers are willing to spend money on bringing a bat in. Another name that's kind of come up is Nick Castellanos, someone who maybe would be on the higher end of their spending limits, but he would be a, a, a very nice addition to an offense that desperately needs a right-handed bat who uh, can provide some pop, but is a pretty good all-around hitter, which essentially fits the bill for Nelson Cruz or Castellanos. Could go the lesser route, someone like Mark Cano, like Jorge Soler, uh, who's coming off his World Series MVP performance, which could increase the price tag a little bit, unfortunately. But uh, those are just some names that, to, to toss out and um, so, some guys that we, we will talk about over the next couple weeks, especially as we look towards free agency. Absolutely. Absolutely. So our final topic today here is on actually the Veterans Committee for the Hall of Fame, uh, not specifically around the Brewers. Uh, so I want to just take some time. There's about 20 different players. So, of course, we won't dive too deeply into each of these players' careers, but uh, also names worth noting. Um, some excellent players during this time. Uh, and David, do you want to share just for those that aren't familiar, what is the Veterans Committee and how does this work and how is it associated with the Hall of Fame? Yeah, there are two ways that players or um but, well, I guess players specifically can get into the Hall of Fame, either via the baseball writers, which is the standard ballot that you hear about, the 75% threshold, um, and uh, and that is only for players. The Veterans Committee is for executives, maybe umpires even, um, or former players who maybe were, were not voted in via the writers' ballot, um, but kind of get a second chance. So this is comprised of 16 former players and executives and coaches, and 12 of the 16 are needed uh, to elect the players. We've seen some pretty notable names over the past couple of years. Uh, Alan Trammell, Lee Smith, of course, Harold Baines, uh, kind of the, the notable one of, uh, he had, I think, like two former managers and five former teammates on the panel. And they all meet and congregate and talk about the players. So it's not independent uh, that... That does factor in, and then there's a vote at the end. So 12 of the 16 votes are necessary, uh, and they they try to choose a variety of people. Robin Yount, I know, has been a member before. Raleigh Fingers has been a member before uh, of the committee. So some of the, the big names that uh, were part of this game uh, for a long time. So there are, there are two committees that are meeting, the Early Era Committee, and the Golden Days era committee, which the Golden Days is 1950 to 1969, early era pre-1950. Um, and the just go through a few of the names, especially the early era, you probably wouldn't have heard of many of them. Uh, some of the more notable ones. What is interesting in this one is they kind of went the non-traditional route. Most of the time you would see guys who were maybe very good players, but just didn't get elected for whatever reason. Instead, they're going with some guys who are maybe more influential on the game itself. So John Donaldson was one, a pitcher in the Negro Leagues, and he was one of the guys who, uh, who started barnstorming, which was where Negro League teams would travel around um, the United States, even other countries sometimes, and uh, essentially they were a traveling team, and then that's how they would make their money. So that's how many of the Negro League teams were able to survive was through barnstorming. John Donaldson was a very good pitcher and someone who, um, who uh, brought this idea of barnstorming into baseball. He's someone that would certainly get my vote 
uh, for his impact on the game. Bud Fowler, someone who uh, people to people consider the first black professional baseball player in 1872. Uh, he's someone who he played for a couple of years, uh, but having that distinction of officially being the first pro baseball player in 1872, uh, definitely something that you could uh, you could see playing a role in possibly his induction. Vic Harris, a uh, very good outfielder, managed uh, the Homestead Grays to seven pennants after a seven-time Negro League All-Star career. Uh, hit 305 in at least the recorded stats we played, the recorded stats we have of his career, and played for 25 years, someone that is likely um, deserving of a Hall of Fame induction. Lefty O'Doul, another interesting one, hit 349 across parts of 11 years, 25 career wins above replacement, uh, played in the 20s and 30s, but he's also known as one of the founders of Japan's professional baseball league, the Nippon professional baseball. He was actually the first American inducted into the Japanese Baseball Hall of Fame about 20 years ago. He's someone that with his impact on the game of baseball, I think is deserving. And then Buck O'Neill, a name, kind of an ambassador of Negro League Baseball, lived till he was almost 100 before he died in 2006, was a very good player. And then he also helped found the Negro League Museum in Kansas City, which is an excellent museum I would recommend checking out if you're ever in that area. And then he became the first ever black coach in major league history with the Chicago Cubs. I believe that was in the 70s, was a scout later on. Uh, I think he signed Ernie Banks as well as a scout. Uh, so an excellent baseball career, someone who uh, was thought to be inducted. People thought he was going to be inducted in 2006 and then hasn't gotten an opportunity back on the ballot since then. I think he'll, he'll go in and I think he's deserving of it. A few other names that you could argue about. Um, but I don't think we'll probably go in uh, Bill Dolan, who was a good shortstop in the around the turn of the century. Tubby Scales, uh, good Negro League outfielder. Allie Reynolds, pretty good pitcher for the Yankees, but uh, mostly was just a, a pretty good pitcher on a very good team. And then Dick Cannonball Redding, who was known as maybe the hardest throwing pitcher in the Negro Leagues. Uh, but unfortunately, we don't have much data on him. Looking at the Golden Days era, uh, which are some more modern names, Dick Allen is someone who slugged 534 for his career and 351 home runs in an era where offense was kind of uh, maybe a little bit sparse in the, the 50s and 60s uh, and into the 70s. Uh, he actually is OPS plus adjust for the league uh, and, and the, uh, the environment at the time is tied for 22nd all time, tied right up there with Frank Thomas. And right around Henry Aaron, Willie Mays, and Frank Robinson, three of the greatest hitters of all time. Somebody that is absolutely worthy of a Hall of Fame enshrinement. Unfortunately, he passed away last year, though, uh, so he would not be able to be at the induction. Ken Boyer, someone, 11-time uh, All-Star, very good defensive third baseman, five-time gold glover, uh, and had a very accomplished career all around, won an MVP. Someone who certainly could be willing could be worthy of an induction as well. Gil Hodges, uh, first baseman on those great Brooklyn Dodgers teams of the 40s and 50s, lost a few years to military service at the beginning of his career, uh, ended up having an eight-time all-star career, 370 career home runs, excellent defensive first baseman, someone who, um, who many believe has been overlooked all these years, also managed the 1969 Mets to a World Series champion. Uh, Gil Hodges, certainly... Uh, up there with um, uh, among the greats. Jim Cott, 
who unfortunately made some uh, headlines with a, a racist statement as a broadcaster a few weeks ago. Uh, he's was a pretty accomplished lefty, 283 wins across 4,500 innings, and won 16 gold gloves, which was a record that held for most until Greg Maddox broke his record. Uh, he's someone that was kind of what you'd call a compiler. Could see him making it to the Hall of Fame, but uh, probably not someone who will be inducted. Of course, Roger Maris, who hit 61 home runs in 1961, a record that held for many years, and some still consider to be uh, the uh, kind of the real record. Two-time MVP, seven-time All-Star. Didn't quite have the longevity across his career uh, as far as the performance, but his peak, I think, definitely uh, would merit his, his enshrinement into the Hall of Fame. Mini Mignoso, the first Cuban Major League star, hit around 300 for his career, 2,100 hits, 13-time All-Star, 130 OPS plus, very good mark, someone that I think is worthy of the Hall of Fame. Those are just some of the highlights. A couple other ones, Danny Murtaugh, a very good manager, uh, won a couple World Series with the Pirates. Tony Oliva, who had, over, I think, over 2,000 hits, three-time batting champ for the Twins. Billy Pierce, who was a pretty good left-handed pitcher for the White Sox, 38 career shutouts, 327 ERA, 211 wins. And Mari Wills, who was the first guy to steal 100 bases in a year in the live ball era, uh, but maybe doesn't quite have the totals uh, to, uh, to merit the enshrinement, the induction into Cooperstown. Just wanted to touch on a few of those names, though, uh, throughout and, and kind of talk about the Hall of Fame. I'm always intrigued by the Hall of Fame. And some of the players that go in, Ted Simmons went in last year as um, part of the, uh, the Veterans Committee ballot. Uh, so definitely some big names here. And these will be voted on coming up in about a month in early December. Yeah, thank you for that, David. I think there are a lot of big names there. I mean, even we talk about some of these older players, Roger Maris, Minnie Minoso, Tony Oliva, Maury Wills, a lot of these stars. Um, Maris, like you said, seven-time All-Star. Um, a lot of, of course, Roger Maris known for that 61 home run season. Uh, unfortunately, didn't quite have the consistency and longevity across his career that could pile up some of those stats, but 127 OPS plus, of course, three-time World Series champ with the Yankees during his time. Uh, he's somebody that I might have a hard time electing given the, the totals across his career, but at the same time, depending on how you weigh that peak, I, I think you can make the case for someone like him, um, as well as Tony Oliva as well, uh, eight-time All-Star, three-time batting champ, five-time hits leader, 131 OPS+. plus. Great offensive hitter, 43 uh, baseball reference wins above replacement um, as well. But it seems like a fair amount of big names here. I do expect to see a couple of those players uh, elected. If you had to choose just three players, I'm going to na narrow this down for you here. Uh, you mentioned a fair amount of players that you would either vote for or would be in favor of being elected. Uh, let's say you've got three votes here, three players you could uh, vote for or elect to the Hall of Fame between both eras, which I know is really challenging to break it down that uh, specifically, but who would be your three choices uh, among these 20 or so players? I would choose John Donaldson, uh, influential Negro leaguer, Buck O'Neill, uh, who was uh, in the game for a very long time and I think is worthy of enshrinement, and Dick Allen, one of the great hitters of his generation, the 50s, 60s, uh, 70s era. Uh, I would choose those three if I had to choose, but I think there are a few more than just those three that are that are really worthy of enshrinement, uh, and we'll see what they what they decide uh, how they vote. 
I think Dick Allen is the most likely to get in. He, along with Buck O'Neill, uh, both were have been on the cusp of induction before and just like one or two votes away. So I think we probably will see them both go in for this upcoming election cycle. So there you have it. There's David's predictions. I think we could talk Hall of Fame, especially David, uh, for hours here tonight, but we will continue moving on. Uh, wrap, wrapping up here today, we have the awards finalist being released tonight here. Um, if you're listening to this as it was released here on Monday, the 8th of November, uh, that will be interesting. Corbin Bird's, of course, expected to be among the NL Cy Young finalists. Um, and then also reliever of the year will be released on Wednesday. David, you mentioned the Brewers have a shot at winning that for the fourth consecutive year, which is uh, a pretty impressive feat. Of course, Josh Hader, 2018, 2019, Devin Williams, and the 2020 Rookie of the Year and NL Reliever of the Year. And 2021 should be Josh Hader, uh, who was just all, almost perfect this year, uh, minus, of course, the slider uh, left over the plate to Freddie Freeman in Game 4. But I would expect Josh Hader to receive that award and the Brewers to have four straight NL Reliever of the Year, which is... Uh, and so, David, as we wrap up today, uh, we will be covering... Um, again, starting to look at more options for the Brewers in the offseason. Also doing a career recap for Ryan Braun last offseason. We continue to talk about whether Ryan Braun would be returning for the Brewers. Ultimately, of course, Braun and this season this year. We'll do a full Ryan Braun career recap, uh, which should be a fun time. I'm sure there will be some uh, walk-off Grand Slam references, 2008 moments, 2011 MVP mentions from Braun's prolific career as one of the greats in Milwaukee um, Ryan Braun. Like I said, we will recap his career long overdue next week on uh, the podcast as well as continue to dive into more options for the Brewers as we fully enter the 2021-2022 offseason. David, uh, before we wrap up, what is today's trivia question? Today's trivia question, once again, which happened more often or has happened more often? A Brewer leading the league in home runs in the American League or the National League? And just wanted to clarify uh, before we reveal the answer, that this includes tying for the league lead. Uh, we, we count that as, as leading the league. Uh, so which happened more, American League or National League? What is your vote, Peter? Which one do you believe uh, to be the more common occurrence in Brewers history? Well, of course, Brewers were in the American League uh, for about 30 years, as opposed to uh, the shorter tenure in the National League. So for that reason, I'm going to go with the American League. That is correct. Uh, for... Four times has a Brewer led the American League in home runs versus just three in the National League. Although three of the four times in the AL, it was a tie atop the leaderboard. We saw George Scott in 1975 tie with Reggie Jackson. 1979, Gorman Thomas led it outright. 1980, Ben Ogilvie tied for the league lead with Reggie Jackson. 1982, Gorman Thomas tied for the league lead also with Reggie Jackson. And then in the National League, we saw Fielder lead it with his 50 home run campaign in 2007. 2012, Ryan Braun hit 41 home runs, which led the league. And then the often forgotten one, 2016, Chris Carter, who tied with Nolan Arenado uh, with 41 home runs. Uh, that one, I would say, is kind of the forgotten one because it was just kind of a random uh, random year for uh, for Carter there. Yeah, I certainly did not remember Chris Carter's 40-plus uh, home run season. I even forgot about Ryan Braun leading the league in home runs. I, I actually, to be honest, was not aware that he had done that over his career, over 40 home runs in that year. I obviously thought of Prince Fielder's 50-plus home run year in 2007 
and Gorman Thomas, I knew, had done it as well. But interesting, George Scott and Ben Ogilvie also leading the league in home runs during their time as a Brewer. Great trivia question there as we focus on the Brewers' uh, all-time greats among home run leaders. Also interesting to note, of course, the Brewers' home run leader all-time, Robin Yount, never leading the league in home runs. Also kind of an interesting fact uh, for the Brewers franchise. So, David, we covered a lot of ground today. What are your final thoughts before we let everyone go today on the podcast? Well, we're talking about the award uh, and the award finalists and reliever of the year being uh, revealed this upcoming week. One thing that I think is interesting, we'll probably see Craig Council's name again among the manager of the year finalists, although it is expected that Gabe Kapler will be named NL manager of the year. Uh, and I think this would be Council's uh, fifth time finishing in the top five, fourth, maybe fourth time finishing in the top five of, rookie, of uh, excuse me, manager of the year voting. Finished second in 2018, um, and I think there. I think he finished fourth one year, maybe third another year. So, um, Craig Council, who is maybe the best manager in baseball, could be receiving his manager of the year award. So one of these years, but I don't think that this will be the year for Council, even though his name likely will pop up among the finalists with a likely second place finish. Yeah, he really is one of the greats in the game at the moment as far as managers go and is probably an underrated reason the Brewers have continued to have success here year after year um, with a team that's, frankly, outperformed every year's projections. Uh, we talk about this every offseason uh, based on fan graphs and baseball references and all the other projection systems out there. Brewers just continue to outperform that. And whether you want to put that on David Stearns, Matt Arnold, Craig Council, team culture, Mark Atanasio, Brewers fan base, whatever you want to put it on. I think it's probably a lot of those things combined, but certainly Craig Council has a large impact on the Brewers. His value certainly has been huge over the last couple of years. And hopefully one of these years, he does take home a well-deserved manager of the year award. That's all we've got here for you today. As we close up again, next week should be a good episode as we reminisce Ryan Braun's uh, prolific career as a Brewer and dive further into the Brewers 2022 offseason as they look to become a serious World Series contender. And as always, we will close with Go Brewers! Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. We would greatly appreciate if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love if you would be willing to support our podcast financially. And you can find the link to do that down below in the episode notes through the Anchor app. Be sure to check out our blog at bleedingblueandyellow.wordpress.com where you can find great articles and content there and interact with us at Brewers Podcast on Twitter or Instagram. Thanks for listening and see you next week.